Good morning. Thank you, Nick. And it's indeed a joyful morning for the Mosier family to be here just two weeks after the beginning of what was an extremely difficult time for us. We're so glad to know you were behind us in your prayer and um, care and love and concern from afar. I know it's hard when you're, you're not behind the veil to know, but we appreciate and love you so much. We're so thankful. I would not have guessed we would be here two weeks ago today, but we are here and we find ourselves, like all of us at some point, that the unimportant things in life are stripped away by the reality of mortality and the uncertainty of what the future might be. In a moment of time, our lives can change. And um, we're better prepared for that as we live for Christ along the way and we're faithful so that we always have the hope of heaven no matter what happens. Not that life is free of problems and difficulties, but that we are prepared to have the good, the good position to think about it in the right way in the midst of our pain. So we're really thrilled and even I thank you and our family so, so very much. So today we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you probably won't learn a lot of new details from what you already know, but I have a little bit of a, a turn on it that I want to bring to you that came to me while I was studying this a little bit closer in the last few weeks, and understanding in the context of God's grace to us as His people, um, and how God's grace is expressed to us through good leadership. It's God's graciousness and gift that He gives to us as His Spirit works through good leaders. And uh, by giving us leaders of high standards. Um, according to John Maxwell, who writes a book called The 21 in Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, he says, when a group first comes together, leaders tend to focus on what is natural for them, leading. Eventually, people change direction to follow the strongest leaders. From there, people naturally align with and follow leaders stronger than themselves. And this is really true. You can even see this with children. Um, natural leadership is sometimes seen in children, and other children tend to follow that. Sometimes those that want to be leaders cause children to follow a bad path, and they're bad leaders. Well, the same thing can happen as adults. So my working definition of a leader is one who leads groups of people, unlike a mentor who works with people more personally. So we talk about mentorship a lot in this culture, about coming alongside someone and helping guide them in their life and, and develop their character, let's say. But a leader leads groups of people. In the church, I believe that leadership is also mentorship, in, this, in, the, in the general sense, that leaders should also be mentoring those in the church and leading and guiding and even mentoring each other on a leadership level. So it's, it's deeper in the church, I think, than it is in the world, and it's more important. Let's go to the Lord before we read our passage this morning. Father, we invite you here with us today. I pray your spirit would transcend my words and my thoughts, that you might speak to us clearly in your word as to what you've designed, what kind of leaders we should choose, and what kind of leaders we should follow, and what kind of pitfalls to look for. For Lord, we want your church to be healthy. 
We want your church to be able to withstand against the pressures of the world and all the designs for its, the church's destruction. So, Father, we invite you here now. Help us understand deeply and help us love you more. Amen. So 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, I will read this. And this is uh, Paul talking to Timothy about what is required for leadership. And we want to keep in mind that in chapter 1 of Timothy, he had been discussing false teachers in the church. And so that kind of laid the groundwork to say, so here's what is true and good. And then next week, there will be a discussion uh, about deacons in the church that will follow naturally. So let's read our passage. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. One thing about being a leader, one who aspires to the office and desires the task, must realize that you open yourself up to scrutiny. And here when we choose elders in our church, this is a congregational-led church, which means that the congregation chooses its leaders. Some churches are set up on what's called a Presbyterian style of leadership, where leaders choose the leaders. And I'm not gonna to try to make the case for either of those today. Um, obviously, I agree with a congregational view of leadership, because even in a Presbyterian church, if people don't agree with the leadership, they'll vote with their feet anyway. And so people have a final say, regardless of your, your, your polity. But leaders, you open yourself up to scrutiny when you want to be uh, aspire to this position. And in our church, as we choose leaders, we scrutinize who we choose to a degree um, that we want to follow the scripture. We want to follow the outline of what someone should look like, understanding no one's perfect, but that we want to get the spirit of the design. We constantly see in the evangelical and church world leaders failing constantly. And there's a lot of reasons for that, um, certainly. And a lot of it is not necessarily the development of moral failure. It's the existence of underlying moral and character issues when this person is exalted to leadership, either by their own push or by a group anointing them in that position. Usually, if you look at some of these uh, leaders that fail, there's often issues that were already there, were ignored, were explained away because the person was, quote, gifted or had some great ability, that we were okay to overlook this, that Scripture exposes as saying that's not a good leader because we want the benefit that we see. But bad leadership will always 
fail in the end. Perhaps it can go on for years or even decades, but eventually the fruit of bad leadership will show up. And oftentimes in the church, it's very catastrophic. A lot of you could probably name a church that's fallen apart because of bad leadership. And so it's very important, but it's a difficult struggle because Christians in a church, especially a small church like ours, are on a number of different um, spiritual journeys, for lack of a better word. They, we come from different uh, denominational structures or belief structures. We have certain things in our past. We're at a different place in our walk of maturity. So to pull out those people who aspire to be leaders and fulfill the requirements is a difficult task. And there has to be some charity in that matter as we look at this. And so it's not simple and it's not easy. And there sometimes might be fits and starts. But generally, our stance on eldership is if, if, uh, you know, we, if there's no one who aspires to do it any more than we have, if we have only a few people, then we'll work with that. We don't put people into positions just to fulfill a number. We want God to move on people's hearts. So as we look at this passage, the word overseer is used here, and the definition of this means to look or watch. An overseer looks and watch, and this word is also used as bishop in, in uh, other places. Interestingly, in 1 Peter 2.5, Peter talks about Christ as the overseers or the bishop of our souls. He watches out for us. And so this is kind of the idea, I believe, that Paul is imparting to us that the elders are overseers. They're not overlords. They're overseers of concern and care and teaching, much like Christ is over all of us. So Christ is reflected in his church through good leadership. And we have safety, and we have comfort, and we have stability. So one of the requirements for this elder is that he should, and I say he should, we believe here at Cross Point Community Church that eldership is um, confined to, to men, and it says he aspires to the office. There has to be some inclination, strong inclination, to that um, position. We should not, when we're looking at potential people or thinking about people that are good leaders, it should not be a surprise to them if we say to them, hey, have you ever thought about eldership? If it's a surprise to them, then perhaps that's an initial push of God's Spirit toward them that needs a little bit more time to come to fruition. He should aspire to it. One commentator had this to say about this word usage. He pointed out that the verb for aspire is used only two other times in the New Testament. Paul used it in 1 Timothy 6 to describe those who long for wealth. They aspire for wealth. The writer of Hebrews employs it to describe the longing of God's people for heaven. We aspire for heaven. The word has a sense of stretching out, reaching out, or striving after something. 
The present tense views this more as a pa- more than a passing interest, but as a continuing desire that lives within the individual. So there's this sense in someone who wants to be in leadership that it's not a passing fancy. It's something that is going to stretch them. They're going to have to reach for it and grasp it and work hard in the office. And that it will be a continuing desire to do. And I know a lot of times I've, I've joked about, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I could be unelected this time around. That would be nice. But I say that tongue-in-cheek because I know there's a desire within my heart to be in leadership as long as God wants me to be and as long as it's affirmed by the church, I, and, and there's no other reason why not, I will aspire to be in leadership. And I think that is what we need to see in the qualification for elders. It takes sometimes development for that to happen in the heart of a leader. But in some sense, the God-anointed leader can't help but do no other and is willing to pay the price to be in leadership because there is a price to be paid to be in leadership. So during my study of this, this looks pretty simple. And when we look at potential leaders, every time we go through this every couple years, we get this passage out and we look at it and and we go down through and we check it off. But I realized our checklist isn't big enough. There's a whole other part here that we need to pull into our checklist. And we're going to talk about that today. You're going to go, aha, when I point this out. So we have some other fundamental things about who should be our leaders because we want to do what says it points out in Matthew 7 where Jesus says watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are voracious wolves you will recognize them by what their fruit so as I thought about this I went back to Galatians 5 and read the fruits of the Spirit the fruits of the Spirit underlie the whole life of all of us as believers. Let's read that, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, doesn't that sound like something that a leader should be employing in their life and we should see in their life? Because it seems to me that the passage in 1 Timothy, the qualifications, not completely, but are a lot centered around the being of the person. But we need to look at the doing of the person to get a proper measure of who we want to be in leadership. So what I've done here, and maybe I I could have given you a handout to show you how I've integrated my thinking on this, is I I made the list from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I made the list over here from Galatians 5, and what I tried to do was intersect them in a way that helps us evaluate the being with the doing as we're looking at somebody because it's pretty much fair game when you aspire to be a leader and nothing 
drives me crazier than when some leader who's enjoyed whatever up front, whatever they do in their ministry, all of a sudden has a problem and they're under scrutiny legitimately, and they say, well, this is all private. Well, when you took the position, you opened yourself up to scrutiny. I mean, certainly there's a limit to that. But if you're having a moral failure or you're failing your church in a, in a drastic sense, and as we talked about in Sunday school today about owning your sin in conflict with other people, you got to own it. You said yes to that when you came up here. You said yes to that when you aspired to be an elder. And so that's why we have to be able to evaluate the being with the doing. And if the doing changes and the being changes in time with a person, it's fair game to bring it into question about ongoing legitimacy of a role of a leader. But people are often afraid to do that. But as you know, as you go on in life, you find things change a lot over time. And nothing should surprise you. So we have our list, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of click down through it here to show you what I'm talking about. And so you could maybe, maybe just look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and then because you know all the fruits of the Spirit anyway. And I'll show you how I've aligned them in a general sense. So if I were sitting down with the committee and saying, okay, we're going to look at this person, we're going to say, okay, the Word says, is this person uh, I, I, not a recent convert? Okay? Because we don't want them to be puffed up with conceit. You know when someone has conceit or arrogance. And a recent convert would tend to, according to Scripture, be conceited in a position of authority in the church because they don't have a full understanding of who God is perhaps yet. And it's very easy to rush people into leadership that maybe they're a recent convert. We don't get a definition of that, okay, not one year, two years. Um, but we have to apply judgment here. And we have to ask this question. So it's, that's a pretty easy question. That's not too hard because we don't want somebody puffed up with conceit. Well, then that word is also used that they don't have any conceit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. That goes along in my mind with being respectable, a well-ordered, moderate, modest lifestyle. If you lump above reproach, good reputation, respectable altogether, you're looking at that, you're asking, does this person have patience? Does this person have faithfulness? Does this person have goodness in their life that we can see? How we're defining that they're above reproach, that they have a good reputation, what does that mean? Does every Christian, or, or do you find there are times in your Christian life maybe you don't have a good reputation because you're a Christian, perhaps? That's not what we're talking about. It's kind of one of those things we know it when we see it. Is their life well-ordered or is it chaotic? Is their family chaotic? Are they moderate in their approach to all things? Are they modest perhaps in how they live? We look at one wife. <clears throat> he says the should, uh, elder should be the husband of one wife. And this is probably the largest theologically loaded 
topic, which I'm not going to parse, because it's not extremely clear what that means. There's uh, theological disputes about, well, the person could only ever have one wife ever, the person can't be divorced, or they could be divorced by scriptural allowance, or all of these different scenarios. One wife at a time, what if they have three wives but they have one wife? But I thought I would boil that down to just saying that in our church, our theological line for eldership falls along that a person could be divorced and still be an elder. It's possible. And the best scenario I would use, especially in the case where, say, a couple, a married couple, were both unbelievers and they come to Christ um, or they, they get divorced. The man, a couple years later, comes to Christ, has a great 20-year life as a Christian maturing, and he's remarried. Can he be an elder? We would say it might be possible. He's the husband of one wife. He made decisions based upon the fact when he was an unbeliever, and that might have a different import in the eldership. However, there's potential baggage that goes with that, and we've had this a couple times in my church elder life with a couple individuals that you have to weigh. One person in particular wouldn't be an elder because that was a, the scenario for them because they didn't want it to be a stumbling block for people. So that's an area that has a lot to have judgment in, but definitely there's a lot of things to consider with the one wife clause. But we're not, we're not hardened in our position on what that is. Okay, so let's move on to the requirement that an elder, elder be sober and self-controlled. This literally means not a drunkard in the scriptures. Now, today especially, we need to add any addiction, right? We have this unfolding addicted world out there. So an elder can't have an addiction that he manages his passions and has self-control. Does this person have exhibit self-control or are they flighty or are they given to um, issues of addiction or being uh, habits that draw them away potentially from their responsibilities as an elder? I mean, you can have, you know, you can have an addiction to fishing, I guess, if you want, to where you've got to fish three times a week no matter what. Well, guess what? You're not going to make a very good elder. An elder must manage their house well. <clears throat> I see the fruits of the Spirit involved with this. Faithfulness, love, and gentleness. Faithfulness, love, and gentleness. One of the main problems men have as husbands and fathers is we're often not very gentle. Because our nature is a little more forward, it's a little more to drive home whatever needs to be done, to lead, but we're often not gentle. And it comes across often as not loving. And it's really important that we see that in a man who wants to be an elder. Because it, this implies if, if a man doesn't manage his home well, how do you think he's going to manage the church? We're going to manage the flock just like we do our house. And if we're rough on our kids, we're going to be rough on the flock going to be rough. Not a lover of money must manage the passions, must not love money, not be seeking money. 
to a degree that it's a distraction. Cash is not king in our lives. Christ is king in our lives. Sober-minded. I believe this is living by the Spirit, having a sober view of who we are. Elder must have a good understanding of who we are. Soberly, not, not drunkenness, in this particular usage, this is living by the Spirit. That there's a sense that this person is following God's call of the Word especially, and they attempt to live by the Spirit in their life and be guided by the Spirit. Elder must be hospitable. Now this word actually means a stranger lover. I've always read this as, you know, be hospitable to people, your, your, the faithful ones in your church and your body, and that's true, that's true. But in this usage, in looking at an elder, do they actually love people outside the walls? Do they actually treat them with love and concern and pursue their needs sometimes? So I thought that was really good. I had not seen that before in this passage. Do they have love and kindness and goodness? In their heart. And this will be something you can see in someone that you can't really make up. They just do it because they're filled with the Spirit and they desire to love people and lead people to Christ and lead people on in their lives and, and see them lifted up in life. I think, even to the degree, if you can't even lead a person to Christ, you can often help them make their life better here. And you think, well, to what end? But that's okay. People need encouraged. People need loved. People, you don't know what next step God might take them on after they're outside your sphere of influence. And so an elder must be hospitable to those on the outside. Must be a teacher. Teachers need patience, joy. Must be done with gentleness and love. You can't really teach well if you don't love people. And over the years, I've seen some men who like to be teachers of the word, but they like to be teachers of the word. They don't really love people. They want to be known for their ability to expound the gospel, but it really falls flat because their heart is not inclined to love people. And that should not be the case. And you can sense that with some people who are teaching if they're full of conceit and they don't love people and they're not patient to teach. Teaching takes a lot of patience. You know, and I say, through the years I've said when we have Sunday school or even a service and there's 12 people here or four people in Sunday school, it's okay. We love people. There are people. We're going to teach who's here. So if you don't come, it's okay. We're going to go on. We're going to keep teaching, right, Nick? Because that's what we're called to do. An elder will do that because they love people and it's a joy to teach the people who are in front of you because God's in control of all these things. An elder should be gentle and not violent. <clears throat> Isn't it amazing? God has to actually say that through his word. An elder shouldn't be violent. Okay. Should be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, kindness, Patience, peace, joy, love. We should be asking ourselves about the person or persons we're considering. Do we see this more or less in this person? Not quarrelsome. 
but gentle, patient, and kind. You're hearing the same thing over the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, gentle, patient, kindness. These all must exist. I must be able to look at my elders and say, I generally see this within my elders. And yes, all of us this week are talking about handing in our resignations So after this passage today. So I don't know what's going to happen, but no, I'm, I'm just kidding. So we are challenged. We are challenged by these passages. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, as in an ordination sense, as in a conferring authority. Do not lay hands hastily and so identify with the sins of others. He's saying to Timothy, keep yourself pure. The sins of some people are obvious, going before them into judgment. But for others, they show up later. Similarly, good works are also obvious, and the ones that are not cannot remain hidden. So what he's saying here is that generally you can see people that have good works. Not all works are seen, though. Okay. In fact, we're encouraged to do good works that are not seen. But in the end, a person's goodness and gentleness and faithfulness will be seen in tangible ways that we can affirm. So that is what I think our new paradigm needs to be when we consider elders. I think we kind of do it subconsciously, but I think we need to do it deliberately and ask ourselves. And I think elders consistently must ask ourselves, are we consistently modeling these fruits of the Spirit in the doing along with the being? It's a very high standard. I did want to add one thing here that <clears throat> is not, not really talked about in the passage, but I think it's really important to kind of round out in, when you think about leadership in the church. Um, after evaluation of these things and character, what do I think is the, most, is the next most important thing that has to be addressed when looking at leadership? What is, the, what is the most important thing after we look at the being and the doing? What about them must we evaluate? It's kind of associated with the teaching part. Doctrine, right? We must be sure that our leaders have their doctrine or their understanding of Scripture in general terms is in alignment with the church. Look at what Paul says happened back in chapter 1. He talked about those who um, were in the church kind of went off the deep end as leaders and started teaching things that weren't helpful for the church because that can happen. Solid agreement on the major issues, charity on the other issues. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 2 says, a worker approved by God is known by properly handling the word. And so as we're evaluating our leaders, we must have a clear, and we do have a clear conversation with that person about different doctrinal points to be sure that we're all on the same page. Because eventually, there could be very serious points of contention within the eldership or within the church. You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to get all hung up on doctrine. Doctrine, eh, I just want to love Jesus. Well, that's a doctrine for beginning, but it's not that easy because everything we do is because of something we believe, whether we recognize that or not. You come in on Sunday morning and you do your things because you believe a certain thing about what you're doing and why you do it. 
So your life is full of doctrine, whether it's expressed or not. We just need to put it all out on the table and flesh it out and be sure that we're following what we believe. So it's a nice sentiment, but it's, it's not helpful. And doctrine is extremely important when you're dealing with leaders. So I thought just for fun as I close, this isn't really a very fun conversation. So I thought just for fun, I'm going to give you, I'm going to let you do a little doctrinal scoring of a leadership statement, okay? It's going to be yes, no, or maybe. These aren't tricky, but I want to, I want to give you some things that I've personally been exposed to or heard in my life, and, and I want you to say, yes, this has good doctrinal grounds. No, it does not have good doctrinal grounds. And maybe it does. Maybe. Because not everything is black and white, right? Okay, so let's start, with the, let's start with the statement from a leader who says, Jesus is the only way to heaven. Yes. Good. Not tricky. Not trying to trick you. Okay, what about the leader that says, everyone will ultimately be saved in the end? No. <clears throat> the coming rapture is, is true. The doctrine of the rapture where we're caught up and sent into the heavens is true. Maybe, right, maybe. A lot of dispute about that, maybe. Um... You have to be baptized to be saved. No. I was told one time that to learn to speak in tongues, if you just say, see my bow tie, tie my bow tie, over and over and over, faster and faster, it will loosen your tongue and you'll, you'll speak in the spirit. What do you think about that? Not really. Not really. I'm not making fun of anybody. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three individual beings. Mm, who said no? No. They are not individual beings. Think about If you don't, don't get that one, that's one you can study. A person... There are scriptural allowances for divorce. Yes. In our view, yes. One I read recently was a pastor who said God told him that I was to design a Bitcoin and all the people in the church were to invest in it. And God was going to teach us how to be blessed through finances. No? No, I don't think so. That's a lover of money. And it did crash and burn, and people lost like a million dollars. If I sow money into the church, I will reap more money back because God is blessing my sowing. No, but maybe, because God can do what he wants, right? But no, that's bad doctrine. And the reason, the reason I have one more. I'm going to pick on Josh a little bit. But the reason I bring this up is because... Right now, even in our own town, there's a lot of stuff going on with really bad doctrine, and we need to be astute to it. But it's because it comes, in my mind, from leadership that's questionable. And so as we look at leaders, and we're very careful to invest in good leadership and hold the line 
in spite of all, everything else that's going on out there, it'll see us through where we need to be. So if I say to Josh, Josh, the Lord has given me a word of knowledge that you're to quit farming and go to seminary. What are you going to say? I doubt it. Because why? He didn't tell you that yet, did he? So most of that comes from a bad doctrinal understanding of how God works. Now, Josh might be thinking about it, and maybe we're doing something one day, and we're talking, and, and I mentioned something about that. You know, the Holy Spirit could work in some pretty amazing ways, right? But it's not predicated on me taking it upon myself to know what you're to do. That's bad doctrine. And so we want leaders that are fully ensconced in the Word. We want leaders that trust God to lead people. I want you to be led by the Holy Spirit. I mean, didn't, didn't two weeks ago, with our personal situation, didn't that just highlight how quickly life can change? It's possible that Mosier's life could be completely reordered right now. And maybe I'd no longer be in eldership overnight. So you need to be strong. You need to be self-led as you're led by the leadership. And that's what we want here at our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so good. You give us leaders in combination that can help us hear your word and understand how to follow. And Father, I pray you keep our leaders safe, their spouses, their children. Keep our deacons safe, their spouses, their children. Help us have your wisdom, Father, as we navigate the culture, as we navigate church culture. Help us be strong, Father, and help us to know your ways. Help us be confident you're leading us. And we just love you so much, Lord. And thank you for your word. Amen.